July marks 20 years since the end of the Rwandan genocide. In the summer of 1994, the death of the country's president, Juvenal Habyarimana, sparked brutal violence between the country's two major ethnic groups. The genocide took place over 100 days, but left an estimated 1 million people dead. Two decades on, I've come to Manchester to speak to Richard Bender, a Rwandan academic and genocide survivor. In a series of programmes, he'll be discussing the process of reconciliation, the country's charismatic leader, as well as his own memories of the genocide. He began by explaining the state of ethnicity in Rwanda today. I think the issue is still there. The government came out and said outright that ethnicity is abolished. Now that is, as a political discourse, that, 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 that works, you know. You can't, you can't pretend to be a government and, you know, and say, okay, fine, carry on. But in reality, the problem is there. And I don't think that it's softening because it is no longer talked about. I think, I, I see danger in that. You think because it's not talked about, because it's yeah, I think because no people, it's a people don't sorry because people do not come to that realization by their own, by a process of rediscovering another identity, they come to that position because again the the, the state or the government is telling them so, and I, and I think it is one of the dangers in successive regimes in Rwanda that. You know, you tell people what to do as if people can come to the same conclusion by a process of, of, of democratization, of dialogue. When you listen, the words Hutu, Tutsi are very key to the dialogue. So it means really it's in the subconscious and in, in, of the Rwandan people. Uh, and they have, I suppose, they really have to come out and then be because if they are constructs, you can only expose them and then obviously deconstruct them, show how dangerous they are. Rwandans are smart people, and so you can say, but why would you choose to keep basing your politics on a concept which is destructive as ethnicity? And I think. By opening the debate, people can actually challenge themselves and construct ethnicities and find a better solidarity, I suppose, uh, which is supposed to be Rwandanness. And we don't know what that is yet. But Ndumunya Rwanda is supposed to help people discover what that is. For so much of Rwandan's history, it's been governed along those lines of Hutu and Tutsi to suddenly decide there's no such thing as ethnicity. It's hard for the people who still remember that time before to suddenly change tack, like you say. I think what I'm trying to say is Rwandans have never had um, a healthy relationship with ethnicity because of the way ethnicity appeared, at least as a political component. I, I believe, as many people do, that it is not the Belgians or the Germans or the missionaries did not coin the words because they are Rwandan concepts, so they are Kenya Rwanda concept and they existed in the culture and the society. People disagree and agree and agree to disagree what it actually meant to be a Mhutu, a Mututsi, a Mutkwai before, uh, before colonialism. But certainly they were not as dangerously 
associated with political violence as they became in the, in, in the 50s. When it, they started um, being imposed on Rwandans in the 30s, so Rwandans really didn't have much of a choice in the kind of, okay, you are Hutu, you are Tutsi. Sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. In the 50s, uh, ethnicity was recuperated as, as a tool to overthrow uh, monarchy and install democracy. And democracy, again, was, it, it wasn't a national goal. It was almost the rule of the majority, and the majority who happened to be Hutus. And then, and then 73, and then 1994, which is why I don't think that people have had any, Rwandan people have had any time to kind of sit down and say, what is this thing? Called ethnicity, which seem to govern our lives, and I think it is time to give it to give people time to kind of look ethnicity in the face and say, "Well, we don't like what it's doing to us." But people can't; governments can't just decide and say, "You are this today, and you are not this tomorrow," because people will always subvert uh, those kind of decisions. So since 1994, Rwanda has been hailed as a success story, I guess, in terms of economic progress uh, under the leadership of Paul Kagame. Mm. And recently he said that he wants to overtake Nigeria as the economic centre of Africa. Has that progress come at a cost in other areas? I think, I think everybody should salute the, what Rwanda has done. Um, and... Kagame is, is Kagame is uh, is a controversial figure, Inevit and inevitably so. You can't. You either like him or you don't like him. Uh, whether you like him or don't like him, you can't deny what he's done in Rwanda. I mean, as you said, it's under the leadership of Kagame, but it's an achievement of Rwandans. It's not an achievement of Kagame. I don't. I, I don't like the fact that we we, we see ourselves through one single person, no matter how strong they are, no matter how charismatic they are. At what cost? I think the cost, we read about uh, the cost in, me in the media, but the idea of maybe kind of human rights and I suppose the, the respect of the citizen in, in, in the process of decision-making is not the greatest, is not the greatest. And I suppose the process of democratization as such hasn't really emerged, I think. The politics space has been dominated tremendously by uh, the RAPF for obvious reason, for practical reason. Uh, so democracy hasn't emerged yet, in my opinion. Do we need to be economically stable and by that create conditions where democracy can happen, it is a possibility. I, I like to think that if we reach a, a, a position or a, a place or a state of the affairs where we have a stable economy, where we all share in that economy, then we become more keen to protect what we have achieved together rather than trying to destroy to destroy it. 
rather than certain groups profiting and other groups. If, for instance, it became apparent that, say, the RIPF, or as some people say, that the Tutsis are benefiting from the progress, then, which I don't think that it's founded, then that would be a dangerous thing because the dividends will not be equally shared and that creates resentment and so on and so forth. But if it's something we all share in, um, then maybe, maybe, democracy can happen. I, I might sound pro-governmental <laughs> pro than I, I would like to be, but I don't think that practically you could have both in the same breath. You said you either love or you hate Kagami. Yeah. Where do you...? I like him. He disappoints me sometimes. Um, and how? How do you mean? By closing uh, the political space, uh, political debate, I, I, I voted for him twice, I think. Uh, but I don't like the idea of having political opponents in prison. I don't think that it reflects well. I can confidently say, well, he can open the space and, and remain quite successful as a political person because that, then that, that creates negative criticism yeah. from, from, from the media. So he, so he frustrates me in, in, a, in that regard um, because I don't want somebody you, 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 you admire as a, as a politician to come out as an authoritarian figure uh, because then... There's not, there's not so much to admire. Yeah, it's not much to admire. And, and then, it, you, you know, you, you're going through the same route as we've been before, you know. The country has made giant steps. Um, I, I, I do wish that after 20 years we can create, we can give more space to a diversity of voices. Rather than... Rather exiling than, them. Yeah, yeah, rather than exiling them, rather well, than silencing them. political opponents have left Rwanda or turned up dead. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> certainly, they, they have. And, and, and I don't think that, that the government in Kigali has, has uh, been straightforward in terms of saying or clarifying their position with with those with those um, either the assassinations or eliminations, which fuel again you know um, controversy and, and, and debates, but uh, yeah, I would like to see less of that, less of that, and there is no need for that either. Because he enjoys such a strong position anyway. He does, and he did not just in Rwanda; he did in the, in the wider international community as well. Yeah. Uh, whether he can associate different members of the political... Whether he can integrate opponents. Integrate, yeah, yeah. It's, I certainly would like to see a more vibrant, better organized opposition. The thing is, sometimes you get opposition parties who have no idea of the challenges, obviously, that we face as a country and are causing more disruption than coming with an alternative. So if nobody can come with a real alternative, then I'm, I'm, I'm afraid but, we are with Kagame for, or with the RPA for a foreseeable future. But if the opposition parties must be allowed to be vocal in their criticism, and if that criticism is unfounded or unhelpful, then surely the people and the voters will 
There is there's no doubt. Well. There's no doubt that we need we need to, to to open up in terms of democracy. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. There is a sense in which you say, well, we weren't ready yet. Uh, but I think after 20 years, you know, it's it's a landmark. You can say it's a tight, it's just time, but it's a, it's a landmark. It's an important landmark where we, we should rethink Rwandan, you know, post-genocide politics and how we, we start to implement a democracy, which is more inclusive. Yeah, you said immediately following the events of 1994 that a strong government was needed to help hold the country together, create a platform. But do you feel that, so now you feel that 20 years on there is more that the government could relinquish? That's, that's the challenge, isn't it? That's the challenge. The challenge is when you've had, because it, it still is true that power has a corruptive and a corrosive uh, effect in absolute power, then will corrupt in, in, a, in, a, in an absurd way. When you have become so used to speak and being obeyed, it becomes very difficult to, to, to relinquish that position. So A, it's going to be a matter of internal decision within the, the RIPF to create mechanisms to, to kind of relinquish that. Or then the civil society will have to be more aggressive, not in a negative way, but more assertive, more challenging. So currently Kagami is in, well, he's in his yeah. final term as president. Do you think he will step aside when the end of the seven-year term comes? What I, I fear and what I hope for is that he, he will step down in 2017. I believe he, he will. I, I, can't, I can't imagine for, for the sake of me having to change, can't see him changing the constitution to stay in power. There could be other mechanisms for him to stay. Is it uh, desirable? 20 years is, is, is a political nightmare. Do you think he's still very much a military man in the way that he's created a very regimented, very strong discipline of country, his continued involvements in neighboring countries? Do you think that he's still, he's still led by his military background? It's not just that, though. I think he's an ambitious person, and I think at the level of Rwanda, he's achieved all he could achieve in terms of a political career. And I think he is be... I don't think that uh, the, the history, our history of involvement in the Congo is, is a good chapter in our history. And it's just, I think it's tragic that a country which welcomed more than three million refugees in 1994, we, we, we went back to cause more harm than good, I think. I think maybe there will be room to make an apology to the Congolese people at some point and actually to thank them for helping us. But other than that, I think Kagame has been trying to influence regional politics in a positive way uh, by putting a strong emphasis on opening borders in East Africa, um, the, 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 the drive to increase technological 
uh, input in a country. But the way he he impresses me by associating young people to the running of the country. So whether he's a military, is only a military mind, or is a kind of a visionary as well in realizing that there is so you can go so far with your comrades in arms. You have to recognize that they can't take the country forward in in the current era. So hopefully, the military discipline contributes to a safe running of the country rather than um, a fist of steel kind of politics. But I suppose really we need it. Africa could use uh, a bit of discipline in our, in our economies and our finances, I suppose. There's, but there's sadly no shortage of military men becoming politicians and becoming the fist of steel that you Africa is still a baby in terms of, of the democracy. I think independences haven't sunk in yet. So I think we will go through this kind of... Uh, it's, it's only been 40, 50 years, and, and that's a very short period. And the destiny of African leaders is not, not always in their hands, so you can't really blame unilaterally the, <laughs> the military. But I think the era of military men is, is, is coming to an end, and hopefully we'll have a, a more uh, political elite which um, is guided by a clear political philosophy rather than just um, coming in, uh, all guns blazing, and then after everybody's terrorized into silence and then trying to govern as, as, as much as they want. I think there is a new political elite emerging in Africa, and hopefully uh, the military people are dying breed, I hope. conversations with Richard on the Pod Academy website at www.podacademy.org and stay up to date by following us on Twitter at Pod Academy. In the other two pods we discussed the process of reconciliation and Richard's own memories of the genocide. This has been Pod Academy. I've been Alex Bird. Thanks for listening.